All right, it's been a blessing and a joy to be with you already this evening to hear your good singing. I would invite you to turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 this evening as we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark. And actually, we're coming to a very controversial passage in the book. Um, you know, I just wanted to make much of Christ this morning. I thought of announcing a controversial title about tonight. I thought I could probably double the size of the, the group that would be here, but then I just thought it'd be distracting. The, the title I was going to give is uh, The Top Ten Things I Plan to Change About Colonial. Uh, top Ten Traditions. Uh, that I plan to change about the church. I, I'm sure there was a time when titles like that were pretty popular in churches, and you would even get like, uh, put it in the newspaper, top 10 greatest sinners in whatever city or whatever. Uh, I'm not much for drama and flair, uh, but uh, this evening uh, we are going to work through a very important discussion that Christ gives about uh, the traditions of men versus the commandments of God. And uh, this evening, uh, our talk is going to be fairly uh, philosophical, the theological. Uh, won't, I won't list my top ten traditions we're going to destroy or anything like that. And uh, that's very, for a very specific reason. I want to make sure that we understand what the Bible says, that we've got a proper grid and framework in place, so that we can be properly evaluating our own uh, attempts at religion at Colonial Baptist Church. And so... Uh, as we get in chapter 7, uh, I'll just say, again, uh, we'll get into some uh, pretty inter an interesting exchange between Christ and the established uh, religious tradition of his day. As we come to chapter 7, Mark transitions from those who reject Jesus and his followers uh, to a confrontation that escalates between him, the scribes, and the Pharisees. Uh, this confrontation provides Jesus an opportunity at the end of this section to teach. Uh, very important, uh, he gives a very important parable, and then he explains it further uh, to the disciples the way he has done so before. If you're taking notes, uh, I, I divide this whole section, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, up in, into two parts, two points to the outline. Uh, the first part, uh, we will learn about an encounter between Jesus, the scribes, and the Pharisees, verses 1 through 13. And after the, the encounter's done, and Jesus is done with them, uh, then there is an opportunity for teaching. And so Jesus, verses 14 through 23, teaches the crowds and he teaches the disciples. And so I want to get right into uh, the first point, an encounter between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees uh, in verses 1 through 13. And the encounter actually starts when the Pharisees challenge Jesus about something. So look in your Bible, verse 1. It says, now when the Pharisees gathered to, to him with some scribes who had come down from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So here this issue starts out with the Pharisees observing a problem. There's something the disciples are doing that irritates them. Now last time we'd seen the scribes and the Pharisees together uh, was in Mark chapter 3. They just committed the unpardonable sin. 
and were said uh, by Jesus to be beyond forgiveness. Uh, here in this passage, Jesus is going to discredit them e- even, even further. Okay, but it starts with them making an observation. They're upset the disciples were not ceremonially washing their hands before they ate. This is not concern over cleanliness. I don't think they had those concerns uh, back around the first century or so. It's not a concern over cleanliness. It's a concern over the Mosaic law and what the law might have taught. <clears throat> now, as I studied the Old Testament this, this week and, and trying to look through, okay, what does the Old Testament actually say about washing hands before you eat? Uh, the only places I could come to in the whole Bible that I found were in the book of Leviticus. And in the book of Leviticus, the, the challenge is specifically directed to the priests. So as far as I can understand in your Old Testament scriptures, there's actually no law that addresses people, normal people, not priests, um, before they eat. There was nothing that required people to eat. But the Pharisees and scribes take offense because the disciples are not following what they call the tradition of the elders. Okay, and that's where Mark makes this uh, point in a parenthetical comment in verses 3 and 4. It's just kind of Mark's comment. You see the narrative going along, and then he just does this an aside in verse 3. When he explains a few things about tradition, he says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when we come from the market police, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups, pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. Okay, here, so uh, Mark is just explaining to the Roman readers that the Jews actually um, took this very seriously, took washings very seriously, and and he explains that in this parenthetical aside. But then the Pharisees continue and uh, they push Jesus um, because the Pharisees believe that Moses not only gave a written law, the Torah, which is recorded in the first five books of the Bible, they believe that God also gave, through Moses, an oral or a spoken law, oral or a spoken law, and that this law was passed down by the priests through Jewish rabbis uh, later on, Jews will believe that, it, that this oral law becomes codified in something called the Mishnah, which is a part of their Jewish Talmud. Okay, but, but their thought is, not only did Moses write down his expectations, but then he gave a, a list of oral guidelines, uh, spoken guidelines that were to help the people as well, and that this becomes later on codified in the tradition of the elders. Okay, now elders here are not like pastors, as you might think of them, but, but Jewish religious leaders. And so after the parenthetical comments from Mark, the scribes and Pharisees bring this to a public confrontation by asking Jesus a question. Verse 5. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, the oral law, but eat with defiled hands? Their question brings Jesus to, or, uh, brings Jesus to respond with two statements. Uh, you can see these very clearly in your Bible. I actually saw them Uh, Just yesterday, verse 6, you look in your Bible, it says, and he said to them, and then verse 9, and he said to them. (coughs) So structurally, as you're looking at this, Jesus gives two responses, two counter charges to the question of the scribes and the Pharisees. He actually challenges them quite severely in verses 6 through 8, and then again in verses 9 through 13. (coughs) The first challenge is found in verses 6 through 8, and his challenge is, uh, if I were to summarize it, I would say it this way. He's telling them, Isaiah was right about you, Pharisees. Look at verse 6. 
And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandment of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. <coughs> Here Jesus responds with a very strong, very direct confrontation. He says that these scribes and Pharisees are actually doing a really good job of fulfilling what Isaiah, the prophet, prophesied about hypocrites. And then he quotes a verse from the Bible, Isaiah 29 and verse 13. As a matter of fact, uh, in the middle of those verses there before verse 8, you can see this quote. It goes right from Isaiah chapter 29. In that quote, uh, Isaiah, God declares through Isaiah, woe oracles. It's actually all through 28 through 33, where Isaiah is just pronouncing judgment on all these nations, including Israel, Jerusalem, and Judah. Well, in Isaiah chapter 29, his target is Jerusalem and Judah. And he has some really harsh things to say about them and how they're going to experience God's judgment. In Isaiah 29 and verse 10, he, he, call, he says, The inhabitants of Israel are so helpless that they are metaphorically in a state of a coma. And they're completely insensitive to God's revelation. It's less like they're walking people in, in a coma. They're not paying attention. Then in the verse that he quotes here, verse 23, Isaiah describes the people as giving lip service to God. They're saying the right things, but they have hearts that are a great distance from him. They say the right things, but they teach instead of the commandments of God, they teach the commandments of men. Okay, and, and so then after the quotes, I love how uh, some of the modern translations put quotation marks in here to reveal to us where we have a quote from Scripture. So you got that quote in Scripture. Then after the quote, Jesus makes it abundantly clear. I mean, sometimes we're just reading over this, we don't see the real clear nature of his direct confrontation, where he says, you... Leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So they're claiming to hold to the tradition of the elders, the Jewish rulers. Jesus changes it a bit because of Isaiah 29, 13. and says, you're actually holding to the commandments of men, like Isaiah the prophet prophesied about disobedient Israel. But let's look at his next challenge in verses 9 through 13. If I were to summarize this challenge... I think that I would summarize it this way. Jesus is saying, the only thing that you've done well is reject God's commands. Look at verse 9. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, quote, and quote again, whoever reviles father and mother must surely die, end quote. But you said, if a man tells his father and mother, whatever you would be would have gained from me as Corbin that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making the void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Okay, so Jesus starts out with a scathing rebuke. Thank you. Okay, you get the MVP award for the staff uh, this week. All right, and then, and then I'm going to... Uh, although we still have a lot of week left, so uh, staff, you could, you could better this, maybe. All right, this is breaking rule number one right there. <laughs> no, I'm just, now you all get thirsty the whole time. But. All right, so as we look at the text here again, verse 9, he says this to them. What's he say? Well, he starts out with a scathing rebuke here. 
just as Isaiah did a really good job of prophesying about you, hypocrites, you've done a really good job of fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. Has anyone ever told you before something like, you did a really good job of messing this up? Like, I, I just marvel at how well you, you messed this up. I had some people tell me that when I was younger. I won't, I won't name them by name out of honoring them. In a text like this, but you did a really good job of messing this up. Well, the scribes have done a fine job of replacing God's commandments. Wow. <laughs> they, you know, some, I just got another one here. So, <laughs> Wow, this is great. <laughs> That's excellent. I actually have another one here. I just don't want to open it because it's, <laughs> it's a little dirty. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Kirk. I'll take that one too. All right. Uh, so back to the text. Uh, so uh, what Jesus does then after telling them, not only have you done a, a fine job rejecting God's commandments and replacing them with your own, he then, uh, he doesn't just, Jesus just, uh, doesn't make statements like that and doesn't give any proof. He actually goes about proving it. And what he does is he quotes a fused citation of scripture. This is actually something I'm writing, I've written on in Paul's writings, where occasionally authors of the New Testament, in this case, Jesus, and then Mark, actually take two quotations of the Old Testament, combine them together as one proof. And so what he does, you can see this right in your Bible, in verse, verse 10, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother, that's a quote from Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments. And he adds to that with the word and, another quote, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. This is kind of the negative way of saying the, the commandment he just quoted. This quote is from Exodus 21 and verse 17. Here the word reviles, as best as I can understand it in the citation in Exodus, could be translated curses. And it speaks not only of formal cursing of one's father or mother, I think it also came to be used of, and, and would speak of someone who refused to care for his parents, thus cursing them in their old age. Okay, so you get the point here. He says, okay. Okay, so the law, Moses actually had something to say about fathers and mothers. You need to honor your father and your mother, and you should never do anything. You should not revile or curse them. Okay. But then Jesus compares or contrasts that, what Moses said in God's commandments, with what the scribes and Pharisees taught uh, in verses 11 through 13. And, and we've read through this a few times, but what he begins to talk about is a practice called Corban. Okay, and I just want to give you a feel for what that is so that we can walk away from this text and understand it. The, the word Corban is actually a Hebrew word that was transliterated into Greek, and it meant dedication or gift for God. I think the ESV is even helping us here a little bit. Uh, and the Greek text does as well to help us understand what it means. It means gift. Uh, the practice of Corbin spoke of declaring something within your possession as being dedicated to God and or the temple. And so the way this practice went in the first century is you could declare something, you're dedicating something to God, um, you're declaring Corbin, but you could continue to use it throughout the rest of your life until you died. Okay, so when you died, 
it became property of the temple, i.e. property of God. I think, by the way, this sort of thing is still done in Christian churches in some ways, not temple and church, but, you know, so there are some people who, um, when, uh, you know, they, they, they die, they write in, into the will, you know, some church, some Christian school, some seminary. I, I know of a, uh, of, of a man who decided to give his entire estate to a small seminary that I was a part of once. He gave, and, and so he's in his 80s. His estate is worth $1.7 million. Now, his desire, his desire was he wanted the ongoing legacy of this ministry to continue. But in this text, that's not, that's not what's going on with these young people, this young man. Okay, so the young man that Jesus envisions making this charge is, is a man who says, everything in my house is the Lord's. And the reason why he's doing that is because he doesn't want to use his property or goods to care for his parents when they get older. And so then his, his, his father and mother come to him later on and they, they, they need help, they need care. And he says, you know, I can't use any of this for your care. Or perhaps it would be that he, he made an oath earlier on and then he, he finds out later, you know, I, I, I devoted all this to God, but now I'd really like to care, take care of my parents. And so the Pharisees ruled on that sort of thing. Well, okay, you, got, you, got, you made this oath to God and then you've got honor your father and your mother. And so they say, well, you need to honor your oath and put your parents out. And Jesus is saying with that established oral tradition that you've made about Corbin, you are actually debasing the word of God, the commandments of God. You are, you're not allowing this man to honor his father and mother. Okay, and so that's, a little bit of the story here and what's going on. Uh, so Jesus says that they were circumventing God's clear command. I think it's the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, concerning parents in order to protect their own personal interests. Jesus takes the opposite view, however, and, and strongly affirms the traditional obligation to honor your parents, including providing for them with financial support. And he holds that position because that position is clear in the Bible. It's clear in the law, regardless of what the traditions of any men, any elders might teach. Okay, and so uh, let me just speak to us a little bit now uh, from a pastoral perspective as we consider our church and make a few applications for us here about traditions. Traditions established throughout time in matters of religion can be good and they can be bad, right? They can be good in that if they're based on biblical principles or texts, they're, they're good. They can be good if they, they point people clearly to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and the word of God, but they can be bad as well if those traditions are not clearly connected in the scripture. We don't have like scriptural principles and reasons for holding them, or if they're contradictory to scripture. And the, the truth is any church has traditions. We all have traditions. Even a church that's only 39 years old, we all have traditions. Uh, so we meet at 9.15 a.m. on Sundays. That is an established tradition of Colonial Baptist churches. We've been doing it for at least six or seven years now. We have a midweek prayer service. It's a religious tradition. There's reasons why. A long time ago, I think it was formed that we would do that. Now, these aren't like the 10 greatest things that are going to change, by the way. Don't, don't get nervous. We use Awana for our children. Established tradition, Colonial Baptist Church will be doing it for some time. We feel like it, it, it helps kids understand the word of God and memorize scripture. 
We use the phrase from neighborhood to the nations. I've heard that many times here. We continue to use it because we think it really points us to our call as, as missionaries. We uh, take the fourth Sunday night of every month, and uh, we don't meet corporately. We meet uh, in smaller groups, and we call them grace gatherings. These are established traditions of Colonial Baptist Church. But when it comes to evaluating our human traditions or worship or religion, we should not come with an attitude that I've seen in many... This is just me speaking on a pastoral level to you. We should not come regarding traditions that are not clearly grounded in Scripture. Okay, sure, they can build up principles, but we should not hold on to them like some churches. So I think that their motto could be, you know, holding out until the rapture. We're just going to keep it going the same way, not change anything. We're going to be faithful. We'll never, we'll never, ever change a tradition. Okay, I've been a part of some churches like that. It's like, you know, why are you doing this? Well, I don't know. Well, we've been doing it for a long time, so we're not going to change. I think a better mantra for us would be like the, what the reformers did. Uh, the reformers in the Reformation had a, had a mantra regarding tradition and change, and theirs was always reforming. Always reforming. And what was their concept or what was their attitude is they're always going to be reforming and changing their tradition according to the clear teaching of Scripture. So the more they know, the more they realize, the more they understand about Scripture, occasionally they'll have to, they'll have to change up some of the tradi- tradition. And so, always reforming. By this I mean uh, always evaluating and comparing our practices to the Scripture with a commitment to cut loose anything that opposes Scripture or does not keep our focus on Christ and glorifying God. I don't care what the tradition is. If it is keeping us from declaring Christ clearly, if it's keeping us from understanding the Word of God or glorifying God, we ditch it. Okay, now we might do it in a deliberate manner or so on, but so if it begins to confuse or obscure the word, then we remove it. I mean, we are text people, right? That sometimes means that we will drop traditions that don't represent the text well or obscure it or Christ. So always reforming according to the, what we learn, what we believe to be true in the word of God. As a matter of fact, as I was just walking in here, I was talking to Pastor Keith about the sermon and uh, the text. And uh, he, I, I wrote down what he said. I thought it was so good. He said, this is what he said. He said, uh, I've seen throughout my life in the Hampton Roads area the danger and devastation that churches holding on legalistic to human tradition produces. It produces bitterness, destroys homes, and turns people away from Christ. I mean, I'm going to write that down and use that. We are more loyal to the text of Scripture than we would be any tradition. And if someone can show us that our tradition is against Scripture or does not clearly allow for Christ to be proclaimed and understand, we, we should be willing to ditch it. Okay, so in this text... Jesus is confronting the established religious tradition. And he's saying, you care so much for your, the tradition of the elders, you are actually not allowing people to follow the word of God. That leads to an opportunity for teaching in verses 14 through 23. And I'll just go quickly through this. I went a little bit long there. Uh, let me just survey this with you. Uh, an opportunity for teaching. He first starts by teaching the crowds. Look at verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, 
Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that's going into him that can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Okay. So this technically is going to be called a parable in just a little bit, this one statement from Christ, and it is meant to be a provocative parable from the mouth of Christ. With this teaching, Jesus is declaring the true nature of defilement and contamination during the age of grace. Now, some people take this text to say that nothing external can defile us, but I think that goes a little bit further than, than what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying that outside things or objects can't get us into trouble or can't cause us to stumble spiritually. He's saying that external things are not wrong in and of themselves. They can become wrong for us if our attitudes are wrong. We desire them or we insist on them and heap them upon our unselfish desires. But this parable is nothing outside a person can defile them. Remember, you got to remember the context too. We're talking about washing hands. Did he wash hands or not wash hands? And, and he makes this parable. Nothing outside of a man defiles him, but actually what comes forth out of a man, that's what defiles him. And that's when he gives further instruction to the disciples in verses 17 through 23. And again, for sake of time, we'll just move quickly. This further instruction is twofold as well. Verses 17 through 19, he says that all food is clean. He makes this point. Look at verse 17. It says, and when he entered the house and left the people, he gave them that parable, he left the people. His disciples asked him about the parable and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but its stomach and then is expelled, is put into the latrine. And then Mark helps us know exactly what he's talking about with us, what he's doing when he explains this privately to the disciples. He's saying that all foods are now clean. And I think that's a, a really helpful explanation from Mark because we have to remember that Mark's just not writing a book about Jesus. He's writing a book for followers of Jesus in the churches of Rome. In the churches of Rome, they've had a huge controversy about food and whether they could eat all meats or only meats that were slaughtered in proper Jewish custom and protocol. About 10 years before the Gospel of Mark, Paul writes Romans 14 and 15, and he describes a stronger believer as the one who says, you know what, we know that we can eat anything. And here, John Mark, when commenting on what Jesus was telling the disciples, agrees with the stronger brother and Paul the Apostle. He says, all foods are clean. Okay, so in this controversy, Jesus makes that first bit of instruction. All food is clean. And then his second instruction comes in verses 20 through 23. And he said... What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. In this passage, Jesus gives this vice list of sins, and uh, we don't have time to look at everything there. But that, at, the, at the head of them is this, the thought of, he calls it evil thoughts, which have to do with thoughts or attitudes that are wrong and wicked. And I think that stands as kind of a header over all the other ones. All the other things are coming out of these evil thoughts. The rest of the sinful vices in this list involve both 
outward actions and internal loss. I think that uh, the main point of the final teaching here is driving home something from the words of Jesus and, or from the mouth of Jesus, and that would be that the greatest problem that followers of his would face, that believers face, is their sinful heart. God desires us to have pure hearts as his children. But that's not our natural condition. The good news is that uh, we are in Christ. And he gives us strength and power to live this way. But the Pharisees here are obsessed with rules to to control externals with less legalistic lists. But Christ draws our attention to the heart. We work through the text, as I said, there's, there's much to consider here. This is a, a challenging text. Jesus has a lot to say, a lot of instruction to give. <clears throat> but I think the, the primary point that he is making is that God's main intention or goal is for our heart. That's actually even the point of the law in the Old Testament. If you ever go through the book of Deuteronomy, just look at all of the different times you come across the word heart. Although sometimes I think we think of the law of Moses as a bunch of rules and regulations. God made it abundantly clear through Moses in the Old Testament law that the law itself was always about the heart of the individual. And so in this text, Jesus is going after legalistic adherence to traditions that's willing to debase the word of God, the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, men and women, may we be a church that loves Christ, loves his word, and is willing to consider any tradition that would prevent people from clearly seeing Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for uh, the privilege of working through your word this evening. Thank you for this text. There's, there's so much to it, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to examine even our own relationship with you, our own standards, practices, and principles. I pray that they would be based upon the scripture. I pray, Lord, that our main loyalty here would be what the text says over what we've always done. Lord, I think uh, of a church as <laughs> like ours, as much as I would love our church and appreciate our tradition, I, I'm sure there are many ways in which we, we do things individually or corporately sometimes, and, and they're perhaps built upon a, a basis or a foundation that's not, it's, it's not clearly taught in Scripture. Lord, help us to evaluate those and, and to understand those. And may the mantra of the Reformers describe us as a church as well, always reforming, always looking to be better and better representatives of what the scripture says and of how Christ would be an act in this world. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd guide us in the process. I pray that you'd help us. And I pray that you would be honored in Colonial Baptist Church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.